Welcome to Patently Obvious, the podcast where we discuss seminal cases in intellectual property law with the attorneys that litigated them. I'm Alex Delaney. And I'm Michael Gnuish. The point of this podcast, the way we conceived it, was to help demystify intellectual property law practice and give students a primer on the types of opportunities available to them if they chose to go into this field. Today we're talking about the famous Mayo case, which discusses which subject matter can be patented. Alex, you're the patent buff. What can you tell me about this case? This case is Mayo Collaborative Services versus Prometheus Laboratories. It was decided by the Supreme Court in 2012 and revolved around patents for diagnostic testing. Doctors were using thiopurine drugs in the treatment of autoimmune diseases, but they needed to make sure the dosage of these drugs was calibrated for each patient to ensure effective treatment without adverse side effects. Researchers developed a diagnostic test to adjust dosing based on the concentration of two metabolites in the patient's blood. If the metabolite levels were above a certain threshold, they lowered the dose, and if they were below a certain threshold, they increased the dose of the drug. Prometheus owned the patent to this diagnostic method, and when Mayo started using their own diagnostic kits with almost the identical method, Prometheus sued them. The case made it to the Supreme Court, and the Prometheus patent was unanimously held to be invalid because you cannot patent and monopolize laws of nature unless your invention transforms them into something, quote, significantly more. I interviewed Jonathan Singer, who represented Mayo for most of the litigation. Mr. Singer seems like a a really interesting attorney. What is his background? Jonathan Singer heads the Life Sciences Patent Division at the firm Fish & Richardson. He started out in commercial litigation and made the switch to patents after a colleague noticed he had a chemistry degree. Since then, he has litigated dozens of cases revolving around life science patents and successfully reversed one of the most expensive patent verdicts in history for his client in Gilead Sciences v. Merck. Let's go ahead and hear your full interview with Mr. Singer, where you talk about Mayo, patent law generally, and his advice for scientists looking to get into patent. I just want to thank uh, Jonathan Singer for being here today uh, to take his time to be interviewed about the famous Mayo case. Um, So we're just going to start off with some introductory questions to sort of introduce people to you. So um, we know you have a lot of experience in patent litigation, but what was your first patent litigation case? Oh, my first patent litigation case was a long time ago. I was a uh, first law firm, Mayor Brown in Chicago, and I was working uh, mostly in just in commercial litigation. And I got a call from David Whitcoff, from Banner and Whitcoff. He is the son of, of the Whitcoff. And he was at Mayor Brown. And he called me and he said, I see you have a chemistry degree. I said, yes, I have a chemistry degree. And uh, he said, well, you know, would you like to help me out on a, a patent case? I said, what's a patent case? Because I had never taken law school. I didn't take any patent law or anything like that. I said, well, you know, you know what a patent is. And I said, yeah, I, I think I do. It's, it's some invention related thing. I really didn't have much working knowledge of what patents were. And he, uh, he said, well, you know, I think you'll find it really interesting and I'd like you to help me out. I said, sure, I'll be happy to help you out. And as it turns out, the, the technology was really kind of um, uh, a paint that people would place on moldings. It was a stainable molding that you could paint this stuff and it would look like wood grain and then you could stain it. The quality of the molding didn't have to be as high. So you have, you know, molding has one piece it would look really nice, it would have no joints, or it could be many pieces, it would have a lot of joints, but then joints look bad, and so you cover it with this paint, 
and then you could stain it with the paint. And the, the thing that I really remember is the is the inventor, <laughs> the key ingredient, and the company was in uh, you know rural Virginia, like the the part that's right near Tennessee. The key ingredient in the invention was pecan nutshell flour, and the claim the patent had like a requirement of you know, 15% pecan nutshell flour. And of course, the case, you know, the, the other side's product, of course, did not use pecan nutshell flour. And, and frankly, a bunch of the other ingredients that were in the claim. And so this was back when you could kind of allege doctrine of equivalence fairly readily. So our, our entire case was uh, about the doctrine of equivalence. So that was my first patent case. And uh, I was, it, it, well, it was a lot of fun. That's the funny part. It was a ton of fun. Even though it was ridiculous technology, it was essentially just paint with some nutshell flour in it. I learned a lot about molding more than I was expecting. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, You've also said that it's the best type of litigation just because of these relationships you have with with your clients. It's a very collaborative process. You get to learn about things that you normally wouldn't uh, encounter in your job. Um, Why do you think that's different from other types of litigation? So there, there certainly are some types of litigation that are going to be similar, but having I, mean, I worked in commercial litigation to start off with, so I, I did all sorts of things. I did environmental litigation, contract litigation, even even just in the couple of years that I did it. Um, and I would guess I would characterize it as like patent litigation is is on like the asset side of the ledger of anybody who anybody, whether it's a company, big or small, or an individual. This is something that's very important to them. Versus lots of other types of litigation are like on the tax side or credit side. So, you know, there are things that the company has to do or the individual has to do, but mostly they're, it's a, it's a liability that they have to deal with. So, you know, a great example of that was some of the environmental work I did uh, for clients. It, it was a cost they had to deal with. And so they, well, they wanted to win. Resources that uh, are available weren't a significant versus bad case, right? You're representing the plaintiff. You know, usually, it's, it's their crown jewels. Um, if you're representing a defendant, it's often their crown jewels, right? So it really does me. And again, having done a bunch of other different kinds of things, people are willing to put the resources needed. And you know, you'll find out soon enough that all litigation is incredibly complicated, no matter what it is. And if you don't have the resources, it becomes triage versus really being able to do what is needed. Um. So transitioning to the amount of resources and time it takes to litigate these cases, I was interested to see that it was eight years of litigation for, before this case came to resolution, went up to it the did, Supreme Court two times. Yeah. Um, so how did you start this journey? How did you come to represent Mayo? That's a great story. It's, it's more of a, a great firm story at Fish. So a partner of mine, Mark Ellinger, is now retired. He was a brilliant uh, biochemist. He was a teacher. At Southern Illinois University, uh, one professor of the year many times, and uh, he decided for some, like, presumably for the same reason a lot of people do, that he'd had enough of that and he wanted to try something else. So he became patent lawyer, and I, I think one of the folks at Mayo either knew him from his research or knew him from his teaching, and so he began to do patent work for them. And I had started working with him just a little bit. He would, he would call me into the office and ask my opinion on litigation issues that would come up in his practice. Things like, well, if we get this patent and it only covers, you know, this aspect, 
can we enforce it? Does it have any value? Those kinds of those kinds of questions. And so then when this uh, lawsuit came in, he grabbed me right away to help out Mayo. And I had done a little bit of work for them before that, as I just described, but nothing really all that significant. Here, uh, they just took a chance on a relatively young lawyer. You know, it's 37, 38. Um, which is relatively young <laughs> for a lawyer. Of course, didn't think that at the time. Brought me into his office. We got on the phone with Mayo and went from there. In June of 2004, I think my memory is pretty good. That's when it started. And, right? Yeah. You guys know more than I do. Yes, that's correct. Yes. Um, and I know this is maybe not a question you can answer, but did you feel like Mayo had the better argument at the outset of the case? Did you feel pretty confident or did you know it was going to be contentious all the way through? I thought Mayo had a great case that they didn't infringe because they had actually didn't to the range, I think, in the past. Was, was it 230 to 400? Do I remember that right? Those are the numbers. Mayo didn't use those numbers. Mayo had done, you know, a lot of the prior art actually came from Mayo. Um, doctor, there was a famous doctor, uh, a hematologist there, Dr. Sanborn, who's actually now out here at UCSD. And they, they've done a lot of the research on these metabolites. And Mayo had its own kind of view as to what the range ought to be. And I, I thought, that the patent should be interpreted that you had to use those two numbers. I think Mayo was using 450 on the top end and 170 on the bottom and something like that. So I thought Mayo didn't infringe. And I thought we had a great case on non-infringement. So I, I told Mayo that. I said, oh, we don't infringe this patent. And you should you should file a very quick motion for summary judgment on non-infringement, which is what we ended up doing, which is what got started us down this path. That was one of the most interesting hearings I've ever been a part of it. Yeah, because the district court came down really on the other side of that summary judgment, the first summary right. judgment motion, which I was also surprised by when I was reading reading the case. And then you guys had to go back and ask for summary judgment based on the invalidity of the patents. And so I was wondering if that was a strategy, but it sounds like you really thought that there was no infringement. Oh, it, it was not. <laughs> it was not a strategy. I, I will say that the folk, there were a couple folks at Mayo who looked at this patent and did, none of them were litigators. They had the view that you shouldn't be able to patent this, but it was kind of in the, in the ether. They had this view that it wasn't illegal. It wasn't the lawyers. It was more like the, the, the physicians. Like, how can you patent the notion of adjusting a drug dose based on metabolites that just seemed to them like the practice of medicine? But yeah, the, the hearing was, was, that was a fascinating hearing. First off, the judge was, you know, one of his very first patent cases. And, um, you know, he was having a little bit of just general difficulty with the concepts, but more that we got into a discussion at the hearing about, you know, whether or not he would rule in Prometheus's favor. And I promised him at that hearing, which is something that came true. I don't know. It just came out of my mouth at the hearing. I said, Your Honor, if you, if you rule for these folks the way they're suggesting, we're going to be back here. And it might be. Six months from now, it might be two years from now. We're going to be back here two years from now. I'm going to be telling you these patents are invalid. I just said that. And all that turned out to be true. And when we got to the ultimate summary judgment hearing that you're referencing, I said, Judge, you remember? I told you. He says, I remember. I remember what you said. And here you are. And, you know, he had turned in our favor by that time. Um, so it was really a great story on how promises made of like a politician. Promises made, promises kept, was a great lesson for young lawyers, that your credibility, at the end of the day, that's really all you've got, is your, your word and your credibility. That's what we have as lawyers. We 
really important one to be careful. I'm careful glad you were right. Uh, I, that would have been, well, at some level, what did I have to lose, right? He was, <laughs> he was definitely going against us uh, on infringement. I said, well, if we infringe, well, then our defense is invalid, invalidity. But I actually meant, meant what I said. It wasn't just a throwaway. I was wondering, do you have to go through the process of educating district court judges that don't handle this kind of litigation often compared to the federal circuit where they're very mm -hmm. used to seeing these cases? And what sort mm -hmm. of approach do you take to do that? There's two areas of education. There's the law and then there's technology. Let me take for the law first for the district judges that don't handle a lot of patent cases. You know, you just do what you need to do. And in briefing file, you, you would explain things that you otherwise wouldn't explain. And I actually remember that from the Mayo case in the first briefs or so, and we explained what the pieces of the patent were, what the uh, prosecution was about, you know, what was the file history, what was that, how did a patent get examined? I, I remember that. I remember writing those pages of the brief because they weren't in there. And I was like, you know, this guy's never really done a patent case before. We better explain to him what we're talking about. And so that, that happens from time to time. But, you know, oftentimes we end up in districts where they handle a lot of that. And now, many years later, there's just the explosion in patent litigation. But on technology, most judges ask for tutorials because, at least in the cases that I've been doing, the technology is not, it's not the paint. <laughs> that really was pretty simple. I don't think anybody needed a tutorial on that one. But, you know, when you're talking about gene fragments or pharmaceuticals or CRISPR, they want a tutorial. And those are, those are fun because they tend to be off the record and you can be a little more, not as formal. What strategy do you use to sort of get um, up to speed on some of these technologies? I know you have a chemistry degree. You're very familiar with all things related to chemistry. But if you have something with biologics, for instance, I know you've talked about um, CRISPR. How do you sort of familiarize yourself with those issues so you can go before the district court judge and really feel confident in what, what you're arguing? Some really focused prayer. <laughs> you know, to begin with just just that it's hard that that's really the hard, really hard because you need what you really you know you really need to have a, a very good working knowledge of this stuff so that you can can actually make it sound simple things that i like to do is we always fish my firm is very um, lucky in that we have so many people who have advanced degrees in these particular scientists and so usually I rely on them to explain it to the team. So we'll have, at the beginning of a big case where the resources are there, we'll have a team meeting. And the person who, I recall really well, one, I had a fascinating trade secret case about corn breeding. And I had no idea, none. I had no clue how incredibly complicated it was to make corn seed. Not the first clue, but we had... In, in the opposite fish in the apps, we had this, this guy who had a PhD in molecular biology from the University of Minnesota, right? Who was an inventor at the same time of, of some of this genetic technology to breed corn. He was in our office. So, and then we had another person who also had uh, that degree who wasn't an inventor. So the two of them sat us all down in the conference room for about five hours. And we videotaped it and explained to us the science of breeding corn, hybrid corn seeds. It was unbelievable. I mean, just to have these people around. And we really are very fortunate that our firm has 
really hard to not to find somebody who doesn't know. And so that's what that's what I like to do. I, I would have no idea how the folks at other firms, I'm sure they would rely on experts, external experts would do it. But much better to have your colleagues know. I did want to ask one more question about Mayo. I know that people find that case very controversial, similar to Alice. How do you feel about that controversy? Do you think it is controversial or should be controversial? What do you think about the outcome of the case? You know, over the years, it, it, the answer is it is controversial and, and it's it's disliked for a lot of reasons. And I, I won't get into it. it. It's been my observation over the years that the Supreme Court, when presented with a choice between, um, in patent cases, not so much necessarily in other areas of law, but when presented between a choice of more public access or less, they always choose more, which is different than the federal circuit, which has over the years, more had a mission of protecting innovation. I think it, that's what it started out as. Uh, and so I think that's part of the controversy. Had, had the Mayo case come out in the 70s, I, I think less attention would have been paid to it because that was when we had individual circuit courts handling patent cases. And you know, some of them never found a patent valid. <laughs> you know, I think the Eighth Circuit was going um, so a lot of it is the fact that the explosion innovation and the federal circuit had really had changed things to protect innovation. And people see this as an assault on innovation, which it really isn't. You know, if you look at the numbers, it's just not there that this has somehow negatively impacted innovation. You know, yes, have some companies suffered because their patents and diagnostics have gone down in flames? Sure. But then other companies have flourished for the same reason. And I think if you actually look at the numbers, the amount of money that's been poured into diagnostics, we did this for the Athena case that was just, just at the Supreme Court. The numbers tell this tale that it really hasn't had this terrible result, but it has had kind of a, a lot of judges have a hard time applying it. I will say that it is not a bright line rule. That is challenging. The Supreme Court is not a fan of bright line rules and it, it, it isn't a bright line rule. And so applying it is is not so simple. I guess this answers my question about the machine or transformation test. If you thought that was much more workable, it seems like the answer is maybe yes. No, I, I no, I thought that was like a that seemed to me almost like a semantic test. Mm-hmm. I actually don't think that the Mayo case it presents issues at the margin, uh, but I think what it really focuses on the test that I always try to explain to people is say, look, if you, if your patent claim is about telling people information uh, that's a natural phenomenon, it's not going to be enough. If it's about something else, well, then you can argue about it. And it's, of course, where the line goes from the easy ones to the hard ones that makes it so difficult. I didn't think the machine or transformation test was better or worse. It was certainly more patent-friendly. And I understand that. I understand why the Federal Circuit would want that. From a, They do have more, you know, they, they have more... Cons- this is their constituency. One of their major constituencies are patent holders and patent challengers. And they take very seriously their mission of trying to provide consistent guidance in the patent space. They don't always succeed. They try very hard. A lot of really hardworking judges there. Um, and they think 101 is just a, institutionally a can of worms. And maybe they're right. Not for me to say. I just don't think that the negative effects that people associate with me are really true. Put aside whether it's easy or difficult to apply. 
So the new congressional legislation that's proposing a revision to 101, you think it's not necessary because Mayo doesn't really pose this issue or because it hasn't really chilled innovation, it's unnecessary to revise the patentable subject matter descriptions. I don't have an opinion one way or the other. I hate that. I know that sounds kind of like a dodge. It, it wouldn't bother me in the slightest, though, if Congress, they should. I mean, the Supreme Court is filling a gap that Congress has declined to fill for a long time. And so you can interpret that one of two ways. One, they approve of what the Supreme Court is doing. Right? Or two, it's really difficult to figure out where to draw lines. I think it's the latter. It really is hard. People look at Mayo and the immediate instinct to say, well, these put aside what you think of Prometheus's invention. I think it's much more easy to see in something like Sequinon, where you know they discovered that the, the, the waste blood, the presence of fetal and self-fetal DNA. It's a real genuine discovery. And the, the question is, is that something as a society we want people to have access to without patent holders in the way or not? And that's a really, that is a question for Congress. So I have no problem with Congress leading in. They should answer this question. It's just a really hard question to answer. And so over the years, they've avoided, they've avoided answering. And so the Supreme Court, as I've said, they're always on the patent, the patent area. No, it's it. Supreme Court has been forever and a day, a anti-monopoly court, right? And trust laws, patents are no different. They're going to err on the side of public access until Congress tells them all. Um, I guess my last set of questions is related to uh, young law students and sort of what kind of skills they can be working on in law school and then as they begin their careers to sort of uh, become an excellent patent litigator and to familiarize themselves with these issues. So that's easy. <laughs> Just get yourself into court if you're going to be a litigator. My training for law school was bike messenger in Chicago. That's the extent of the jobs I held, you know, those kinds of jobs. I was a leader, I was a bartender, all sorts of jobs. So I didn't do anything special before law school to try to, try to make myself a better. I didn't have any intent to be a patent litigator. But what really did help me is that when I was in law school, I, I uh, was a prosecutor for the city of Chicago. I, you know, I took the job to make some money because I needed money to pay for law school. And this was one way to both pay and learn the law. And it was you know in traffic court, so it was nothing all that earth shattering. But it was a invaluable experience, not the least of which just getting up in front of a large audience every day over and over again to to get used to it. And I joke with people, not that they were really all that difficult, that I've tried more cases than anyone at Fisher Richardson because I tried all these traffic tickets. And even my beloved partner, Juanita Brooks, who's you know a world famous trial lawyer, I, I, I river with that. Of course, you know, hundreds of them were just people who didn't have, you know, their sticker on the car or they going 55 miles an hour. Um, but it was an invaluable experience. It was far more valuable than just about anything else I did to get myself ready to be a patent lawyer because it taught me A, human nature, B, all the skills, getting up in court, doing all those things. And those jobs are out there. Right? You just they don't pay that great. And you know, I, I think this was 1990, 91. I think I was making like 10 bucks an hour or something wasn't very much money, which, you know, I think today is a lot, is more, I mean, inflation and all that, but still that's, that's, you know, that's not that much. And, uh, but it was invaluable. And so I would encourage 
young law students to get out there and, and take one of these internship jobs that are out there. Because I think almost every state has these rules, particularly for third year law students who have time on their hands, that allows you to, under the supervision of another lawyer, essentially practice law. And you're not going to you're not going to want to do that job necessarily. Your, your vigor for it will be go away as you get older. You get a lot of dirt at a job like that. So it's, it's very valuable. And then just one last question for um, people that are thinking about looking for a firm, as you know, OCI is getting pushed back. What are some things you recommend people keep in mind uh, for patent litigation firms? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's uh, obviously uh, we highly value technical skills. But even if you don't have that, I worked for my first two firms, they weren't IP focused. And my second firm, one of my mentors, he had a great line. You know, he was talking about engineering and uh, he says, well, I'm a BE also, but it really was, it's English, the E, the e for English. <laughs> and it does come down, the ability to communicate is still number one. For students who, you know, we have issues and the skills don't change. It's not enough to be a great scientist. You have to be a great communicator. And that's not so easy. You know, you really, for young lawyers, working on your writing is so important because depending on what you're going to do, right? If you're, if you're going to try to go for a, a, a large patent practice, that litigation group, you're going to be leaned on for your writing, right? That's people are going to lean on you for. So working on that is really important. And I find there's this smaller and smaller, you think of it like a Venn diagram, right? Of, Here's the people that know technology and here's the people that can and write well. The overlap is pretty limited, but you can fix that. And it's it's something that a lot of people don't, it, it takes time. And they're not as interested in it as, they, as the technology, which is really so fascinating. That's why they did this. They, a lot of people, they're not like me. I'm the accidental patent trial lawyer. I really am. They're more like very directed. I love this technology. I want to do law about it. And they get so into the technology to forget the part where, well, you know, you're speaking English to people, to communicate to a bunch of people who, for the most part, aren't interested in technology in the same way that you are. So working on your writing is really the number one with a bullet. Well, thank you so much for taking the time again. We really appreciate it. It was lovely meeting you. Yes, good to meet you both. And uh, you all take care and you'll feel free to email me if you need. And if any of your students want to email me, it's singer at fr.com. Welcome to contact me. I can't promise a timely response, but I usually appreciate if I fail to respond, I'm sorry. Patently Obvious is produced by me, Michael Gnosh. November Polaroid is by Silent Ships and Depicted in the Beauty is by Derek Clegg, all via the free music archive. For questions or comments, please reach out at patentlyobviouspodcast at gmail.com.